Hello and welcome to the Business Class Lounge, the podcast where I interview marketing leaders and executives to understand how they really think about leadership, management, finance, and more. This is a podcast from Searchpilot. My name is Will Critchlow. Today, I'm looking forward to talking to Adam Monaco. Adam and I met when he was a vice president at ThoughtWorks and worked with my agency at the time, Distilled. Since then, he's made a couple of moves and is now VP of Global Marketing and Digital at ADEC Innovations. Adam is responsible for some of the smartest B2B campaigns I've seen, and I can't wait to quiz him about how he works. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Really excited to chat to you today. I wonder if you could just kick us off by telling us a little bit, since we last worked together, what have you been up to? What are you up to right now? Yeah, well, my last couple of adventures, I've sort of continued down the path of working really closely with global professional services companies that have a technology bend and helping them tell their story to their customers, to their prospects, to their potential recruits. And I spent a nice you know, five years at a company called ICF, really helping them unify their go-to-market presence, try to make the transition from being a a stodgy government contractor, if you will, to something that is a little bit more aspirational and really showcases a lot of their unique work. And most recently, in January of this year, I came to work with a company called ADEC Innovations, which has actually, um, historically, it's about roughly 25-year-old company that was born sort of in the business process outsourcing space, specifically servicing companies that really wanted to do with a lot with managing their data and where data was a strategic part of their business. Over the years, they've grown to become a portfolio of 25 plus different companies in professional services, in SaaS software, as well as BPO. And they have a really rich array of capabilities around, I'll say the full you know, gamut of ESG concerns at an enterprise level. So along with that growth though, has come a number of companies that grew up sort of independently in the same umbrella. And in an echo of some of my past lives, you know, the chief executive and some of his leadership team were looking for assistance in developing more of a central marketing layer to help think about how to tell that story in a more unified way, not necessarily having a prescriptive course around how that would shake out, but it includes a bit of, you know, content, brand, digital properties, and figuring out how we make those all sing together. So I'm now coming up on um, you know three quarters of a year through that with them, and uh, we're sort of laying out our plans for the next year or so, and and really for the next you know say three to five years around what some of the big programs are going to be. Yeah, and as you know, part of the reason for bringing you on is wanting to speak to folks who've got really hands-on prior experience in SEO, but also have moved to that next level of, of senior leadership. And your job title, I think, your VP of Global Marketing and Digital, pretty broad ranging. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you're kind of coming into an organization that's just figuring out how to do that central marketing function, I guess. So how does the org fit together? Who brought you in? What was the organization there before? Or are you just starting that org from scratch? Sure. So uh, my initial set of conversations where they were explorations with the chief executive officer and founder, as well as some of his board advisors. In the early days, there was the notion that I would be one of the early hires myself, as well as the uh, chief information officer and a couple of others included in sort of the makings of a, it's been called middle office or corporate office, Mm -hmm. but the idea being that these were sort of the genesis of 
a new organization where we'd have to put in place a lot of that plumbing to help support those operating companies, which had historically been very much, you know, kind of direct lines up to the top. And, you know, I dare say the first few months were very much a learning experience. I mean, obviously, the company has been very successful and for a long time, but they just didn't have the constructs around corporate budgets and things like that. So a lot of it was really just starting to socialize what we were learning, socialize some of our plans that we, what we think were necessary, and also to, as new folks were starting to get hired and brought on to help lead the various units, trying to communicate where we anticipated their going to be, you know, challenges that we needed the most senior leadership to help free up. And so we've now learned a lot. And I think there's also been installed leaders at each of what we call the pillars, or they're sort of the big four operating groups. It's been fantastic, because those folks have actually been super collaborative, also super eager to help figure out how to lay the right groundwork. But it's very much a starting very much from the beginning in terms of everything we learned at big companies around managing big controllable budgets or managing big program budgets are now like, okay, well, now here, we manage cash a lot more closely. And so, you know, how can we do that with what we have today? And, you know, not just, it's not Greenfield where we can go buy everything new. It sounds fun. Sounds like an interesting challenge. And how did it fit into your kind of narrative arc in your mind of your career journey? So was it really about that kind of getting hands-on, I guess, in the organization that does the thing rather than a bit more of a consulting kind of role? Yeah, it's interesting because there are definitely days, and there's still days where some days people want me to be a consultant and just tell them Mm -hmm. what to do and they will go figure it out from there. Other days where realistically I know the, the teams are screaming for help and saying, please show us. And so it's like, you know, roll it up and let's get in there and, and go do it. I think that my historic experience has definitely helped in this role tremendously. One, because the first half of my career was really in software product development. And if I had to describe one attribute of all of our businesses, even the professional services businesses, is that they're very much technology infused. You know, they deal a bit with data and taking very raw data, enriching it, making it useful and contextual to business partners. And we have products that help with that. So some of the stuff that we're doing falls squarely in the how do we do product marketing better and in just a a digital world, so to speak. But then there's a whole other universe in here, which is we're a collection of companies learning to behave as one and market as one and deal with maybe some of the legacy we've had of doing it separately. And that's something in my last two roles, I've done quite a bit of in terms of helping companies that had multiple go-to-market faces, be they companies or, you know, different tones of voice or, or what have you. And so it's been a nice piece. It's been a blend of those things. But certainly, I'd say it's gone in some waves, some days where I've had to get stuck in and really show the team how to do some really specific stuff. Increasingly, it's becoming much more showing what good looks like, coaching them towards that, helping set expectations with leaders. And, you know, I'm happy to say that we have been addressing some pretty fundamental things, including just some what I would consider to be some core SEO basics, but it's been great getting core, you know, sort of leadership behind the reasons why. Yeah, that sounds like a a fun challenge. To get into some of the kind of more challenging bits, you you mentioned, obviously, you've had to align these folks who are in the operating groups, and and they've presumably been in those roles since well before you came along. And I'm sure they weren't necessarily involved in the decision to have a central function necessarily at all. That's right. It sounds like it's been really functional, and, and you all have pulled that off really well. But I'm sure there's been some you know, friction and occasional challenges along the way. 
how do you deal with that? How do you lead through that? How do you align folks? And how do you, I guess, win them over when you're coming into a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. I think there definitely were some very rough patches in some days. And, you know, and the most I can do is I can say, you know, and literally what I would say to folks is, I can't speak to what happened before. All I can speak to is what's happening now. And the thing that gets me up in the morning is excitement about the journey in terms of I love working on great marketing with other folks. And often it's this other stuff about how we organize and stuff. It's necessary, but it's also a bit, it's a bit boring. I mean, it's, it's like, we want to be making awesome content. We want to be running campaigns. That's really fun. And so I sort of treat it as, you know, use me so I can help be an instrument of bringing awareness to what is wrong. I can help bring understanding of maybe an appreciation of maybe some of the business pieces and, and how we can help, you know, give some guidance back that way. But certainly, you know, really just trying to, to really support the folks on the team who usually have the best intentions in mind. And usually it's a gap of leadership not understanding, you know, what's in their way and being the best conduit for that. You know, a lot of the things that have come up that I've seen as a clear need, it definitely took some months to socialize and get agreement that that was indeed a core problem and sort of peel past that initial layer with the uh, senior folks. Yeah, play the politics a little bit at mm-hmm. times or bring the stakeholders along. The other angle that I'm really, I feel is under understood, that's a not too convoluted way of, of putting it in my world, in, in the SEO world, is how organizations actually really think about when to kick off initiatives, how to budget for them, when to bring in external partners, mm-hmm. when to staff it up, all those kinds of things. Are the budgets generally held within the, the operating companies? Are you holding budget yourself or are you signing off budget? Are they coming to you with big proposals and you have to kind of get them to make a business case out of it? How's that working? Yeah, so definitely here it's a little different than what I was used to in my last couple of roles. So my last company, we had a pretty established, what I would call central you know, marketing and business development budget. And even though it evolved over time, there was definitely a set of controllables and you knew that you could work within a framework and say, okay, well, this year we're going to do without that and we're going to spend it on this. And, and that was pretty straightforward. Here, all of the budgets have existed to this point inside what I would call the group level P&Ls. Yep. They are responsible for running those like individual businesses. However, there was an understanding with myself and other of these sort of middle uh, leaders that that was something that we needed to help shape a new direction on. And so I certainly can't speak to all of the internals about it. Effectively, like, you know, we know that there's kind of one of a couple ways you can go about this stuff is ultimately, you can create an organization and that's overhead and then everybody, you know, pays into that. Or Mm -hmm. you can have, you know, some part of the organization take on some of those shared service roles and then build them back, right? Invoice them back to other companies. You know, I think at the moment, I think we're leaning towards the latter, but I think you know, it's been an evolution. But I think the biggest thing is really getting alignment that there are certain things that we don't want to buy four times, we want to do it together, for quality reasons, and for creating the kind of impression that we want. You know, that's the part that's taken probably the most education. I mean, what I found is, while certainly budgeting cycles are important here, from what I've seen, they'll spend money at any point during the year, if it's a real need, it's communicating the need, and making sure that we're being mindful of you know, not having exorbitant cash outlays at certain times, like any lean company would really do, and making sure that we're really thinking about value for money. I mean, we tend to use consultants when it really is helping us through a pinch. We do probably have a bias towards looking at how do we grow talent, especially in the locations where we have more scale. 
but I haven't really seen any type of thing that we've totally just said, we don't do that at all. It's mostly like proving the point in the specific business for the specific circumstance. Yeah. You mentioned that you've been able to get hands-on in some SEO stuff, which uh, you know, kind of throwback uh, style, but how has your thinking evolved on how to lead SEO internally in an organization when you're uh-huh. thinking about, because it's classically a difficult channel for Absolutely. target setting, for budgeting, for, you know, for goal setting, for all of those kind of things. And obviously is then competing with the paid budgets and the, you know, all of those kinds of areas. So how's your thinking evolved on that? And where are you at now? It definitely changes from time to time. I mean, I'll say this much from, you know, the last few years, I think that increasingly, I think if you really look hard enough, I mean, you have to find the couple of true, right, North Star metrics that are important in your business and keep those top of mind. I think ultimately, if you can connect SEO to how it supports those missions, that is where you want to be. And I think it becomes less than about, it's an SEO program that I'm trying to fund. I almost say one of the best things about if you're doing SEO really well, you probably don't have to use the word even that much. I mean, you, you're building it into content and product and exactly, all those other things. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so we tried to stay really close. And so in my last firm as ICF, there we tried really to say everything was about our expertise. And so we tried it to really say, you know, if we could increase people's time on site, increase the quality of their engagement, those were all things that went towards say, well, in order to do that, you know, our SEO investment is what is what underpins that, you know, and we put the science into understanding those journeys throughout the site, understanding the things that were correlated with longer site experiences, and so forth. And that tended to fuel the right kind of work. And so similarly, here, we have a different set of challenges, we're in a different phase of our life cycle. But, you know, a big piece of what we're trying to do is eliminate, in some ways, a lot of competing with ourselves in some cases. And so that's sort of paving the way for some consolidation of some assets or some clarification of how we utilize certain assets. And that becomes one of the driving principles. And therefore, underneath the covers, it's a lot of it is very much core technical SEO work. But um, it actually really just says this is the right thing to do for where we want to be as a brand. And so that helps us just clearly lay out the path. And it's like, well, what can product do? What can content do? And really, everybody sees that they have a role in it. To me, that's the best possible place. Now, figuring out how you get to that position, you know, is always the trick, right? But I think that's key for us. I, I think also we're getting into some newer areas where, you know, some of the stories still being written in terms of SEO best practice. Like we're developing at the moment a marketplace of our products from across our brands. And obviously, there's some really great thinking out there today around what makes marketplaces really successful and what kind of strategies and how do you incorporate that into your core brand. So that's kind of fun because we're also a little bit out in what I would call in sort of one of the newer ends. And that marketplaces aren't new, but it's learning how to do that in the construct of your brand is still a relatively new science. Yeah. And especially when you think about the ways that Google is evolving and is likely to continue to evolve, where if you look back, maybe well, certainly 15 years, maybe even only a decade, there would be a lot of benefit in spinning out very thin content across mm-hmm. all of that stuff, right? You, you, just putting a database online yeah. of the marketplace that might exist in the future. It would probably start getting traffic and you can kind of bootstrap it out of itself in some senses that way. But obviously that comes with risks these days or well, risk of certainly just not working. Oh yeah. And now we're kind of going back to, I feel like we're going back to the earlier days of like lots of smaller, closer knit, online communities, right? And uh, we'll see. I mean, we're in tighter cycles now of trying new things and then scrapping them and trying them again. But that certainly seems to be a trend that's back on the up. Yeah, I feel like it's not just SEO. You see it with um, business cycles. You see it with the companies divesting and then merging. And there's so many of those 
trends that they feel very cyclical. So it, it wouldn't be surprising mm-hmm. if the same is true of the web. I just want to pick up on something you said there about how a lot of great SEO is often not badged as SEO. It's not, it's not in your face that mm-hmm. it's called that. But then at some organizations, at least, and it very much depends what SEO looks like, I think, in, in the org and what the, what the website looks like, you know, th- there will be an SEO team and the yes. specific people with SEO titles. And obviously, then it is batched that way. So have you had folks with senior SEO titles in your teams? Or have you tended to feel like, yeah, it's content, it's editorial, it's technical, it's product? It's definitely, it's looked a slightly different in each. However, I have never worked in an organization where we've had what I would call a large SEO team. That hasn't been the types of organizations I've been in. I know they're there, out there. I know particularly when you get into you know, a lot of really large uh, marketplaces and things where they know that's part of the fuel. Yeah, you look at TripAdvisor, you look at Wayfair, yeah, like some of those absolutely. teams are huge, right? Yeah. But for us, I think it's treated as really, you know, you can have whatever roles you want on your team, but are you willing to, you know, spend your headcount dollars on that and why? And then if people want to peek below the covers and understand what you're spending that on, are you running it in such a way that you'd be comfortable sharing that? Because I know, you know, I've definitely had businesses that I supported who, if, you know, when it got into the mix of, you know, keyword research and things that, you know, they really didn't get it from the outset, you had to really bring them through education. And even then, you know, did they really appreciate what it was doing for them? And so really learning to start taking it from that, why is it important that we treat search as such a first class thing? And when we really bring it back to the elements of, you know, findability writ large around the types of signals that we want to send to the market writ large. I think those are the things that tend to have a little more juice. But in our world, like, I mean, we have SEO specialists that are embedded in our marketing teams. And that sometimes they'll sit in like the digital team. And historically, I think they've always, in my world, they've mostly sat inside a digital team, but I've seen them sit in content teams. But I think increasingly more so, it's becoming more of a charting the strategy and then I think outlining the pieces for other folks to take care of and then managing that program through. So, you know, there's so much now that developers can handle in, whether it's in the CMS or in their practices, but are they really being guided? And is someone watching the metrics and communicating how that's happening and then telling folks, hey, we've got a problem in our production cycle if we're not doing this well enough. So I think that's one way that I've seen it kind of changing a bit. It's really interesting to me to see the evolution as, as you say, certain problems become solved, or at least mainly, and yet it doesn't seem like the work's going away. If anything, it feels like there's more than there ever used to be. Yes. And I find that really fascinating because I think there's always been that slight feedback, especially from engineering teams or product teams, that you know SEO was a market failure in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, that if everything else was working well, you wouldn't need it. And the flip side, and I think the business case is very much, well, okay, fine, but this is 60% of our traffic and more than that in Absolutely. terms of our net new traffic or you know, new leads or new business, whatever it might be. And yeah, I just find that tension kind of fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, one of the things that we sort of glommed onto in our current organization was just you know a few years ago, just some more casual domain moves that had happened as a result of you know it being done at a level that was out here on the periphery and not managed kind of centrally with an eye towards what is the sort of equity in our brands. And when we now look at that in hindsight, we said, you know, you actually took a major step back here. And it would, luckily, it was salvageable. It was something that we were able to sort of chart a path to correct. But um, no one had ever really put that lens on it. And we said, what do you want to be known for in five years? What do we feel that we should be entitled to in terms of this, you know, competitor space? And 
to realize that they had just, through a casual decision, wiped a fair amount of that away. You know, and so those kinds of moments, while you know, you don't necessarily want to bring up every historic flub and rub it in, in leadership space, but you say, this is a teaching moment. This is one we have to take, you know, to heart. And so, yeah, I agree. I think, I don't know what it is exactly. There are certain problems that even though they've been solved and the tooling supports, you know, doing everything we need, like CMSs now have so much tooling to support great technical SEO, yet people blow right past it in the interest of making an MVP or getting something out there. And then they skip all this work, which in many cases is quite simple when you address it at the beginning. And there's ways to just, you know, have checklists or just workflows where the team can deal with some of that, or if, you, if not automate, you know, some of that very quickly. And instead, you end up finding, wow, we have to go back and solve this most trivial of problems with, you know, with title tags or, you know, other silly things, right? So, yeah, but it's really something in this world now where there's so much that's dependent on metadata, like it's, we're crazy to keep going down that path. We should be leveraging the technology to be all over it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You mentioned spotting those times where you've taken a step back or historic decisions are taking the organization in a, a suboptimal direction through mistakes without SEO in the room. How well do you feel like the SEO reporting setup is for you right now? Like, does somebody report on that to you on a regular basis or is that handled elsewhere in the team and it wouldn't bubble up to you? So yeah, it's had to be something I've had to ask for and then had to drive folks to build for me before it was handled independently for one business at a time at their own request, maybe through their own agency, maybe through someone yeah. that they either had on their team or shared with someone else. While we had some tooling, there was a fair amount of more time than I'd care to share around you know, gathering up all the credentials and the accounts and around all of the properties getting that in a place where, right, those were all permissions in a level way, getting those in a place where we could actually even ingest the information in common formats. And then also, you know, to prevent, there were some folks who might've been all over it and they want to race ahead and they want to go, you know, GA4 their stuff and do everything else. And you're like, whoa, these guys are all back here. Let's let those guys catch their breath and bring them, let's go up together. You know, and so there's things like that, which are very unsexy, but they're sort of necessary. You know, so that's the, you know, the unsexy, but also cool part. I mean, not everybody gets the opportunity to work on setups where there's 30 sites or 50 sites or whatever. And, you know, that I think can be fun. It's just a different type of challenge. And a lot of it is learning how to get people, stop them and say, you know, we are going to start going another direction, slow down a bit. We don't want to stifle that, but we also don't want to get so far ahead that people can't appreciate all the awesome work you're doing on that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially, like you say, as an organization, like taking the whole org forward yeah. and not just yeah, like little pockets of it around the place. And so thinking, I mean, less about SEO necessarily, but one of the things I'm also interested in in organizations at least the size of yours or even bigger, and know you've worked at some bigger places, is how that information travels and flows and what the cadence of your week ends up looking like. So, you know, do you have some kind of standing meetings where folks report to you, standing meetings where you are reporting to or working with your core group? Tell me about your week. So, you know, and some of this is stuff that I've brought along with me over different roles. I think some of it is, you know, becoming more commonplace in the market. Certainly, I'm thrilled that agile ways of working have become a lot more popular, generally speaking. A lot of what I learned, you know, with my time at ThoughtWorks working on software development teams was super beneficial. When I went forward into ICF, you know, we started using very, you know, sort of traditional mechanisms to do our 
campaign and content planning. I mean, we just looked at the whole life cycle. We said, if you're going to be building all this content that's digital in nature, it's all a big checklist. It looks a little different if you're doing a blog versus a webinar versus something else. But at the end of the day, you've got an idea phase, you've got a content development phase, you've got a creative phase, you've got reviews, you've got integration. And it, everything kind of came down to how do we sit together, map that out, look at what kind of lead time do we need for certain pieces of content, hold each other accountable, which is often really hard, right? Because sometimes no one wants to say no to the boss or, you know, so you have to unpack a lot of that stuff, but also including, you know, forums where you have enough time to talk together that people don't feel like, oh, I've got to get it in now, or I'm never going to have a chance to get it in. So what I've started to work with, and we've sort of started adapting something similar here in my current space is kind of like a three modes of communication, I'll say. One is, you know, do we have a regular cadence, whether it's weekly or biweekly, for what I would call the core content creators and campaign creators to get together and talk about what are we literally running right now or about to run? And are like the day to day roadblocks out of the way? You know, those folks will typically have like a Slack channel or something where they're working and they're talking about like a daily stand up where it's just talking about obstacles. But even just once a week, formally saying what's moved, what hasn't moved, do we need to communicate anything to anyone outside? That's one level. That's like the inside the team. The next level is sort of the what I would call our direct customer relationship. And that would be like our sales leaders and stuff. And that would tend to be like a monthly. And in that, we would look at kind of a quick analytics review of everything we've done that we ran in the past month, everything that went out into production, and then kind of just making sure everybody's on the same page with the things that we're about to do over the next four weeks or so. And then the quarterly is like the third one, which is really more of like almost like a quarterly business review with like who's the owner of the business unit that we work with might be include some of the other peer stakeholders might be some of our other leaders. And it's kind of really focused on do I feel like marketing is doing a good job for us? You know, we kind of go and we talk at broad strokes around what are the things we help them accomplish? What were the big things we learned? We kind of show not just all the sexy stuff, but even some things that were painful. And hopefully have a little bit of a frank conversation around that. Because to me, that's what kind of comes back to the true ROI, like I look at, you know, everybody talks about how do you include ROI in your reporting? And really, I think if you're including the right measures in your regular reporting, that is what it is. And that's like, I think what all the business wants typically is people that are good partners that are on the journey with them. And so there's going to be ups and downs. But what you really want is when you come to that quarterly meeting for them to say, like, we've got a good partnership, you know, let's kick butt next quarter or whatever. That's really where you want to be. It's less about did I give them a number that's going to make them feel really excited this month. Yeah, the thing somebody might remember from a QBR 10 years ago is not going to be, was it you know, 34% or 68%? Right. Right. It's going to be some story or some time when somebody really felt like something delivered for them yeah, along the way. This is perhaps putting you slightly on the spot, but I'd love, without divulging anything you can't talk about you're currently working on, but do you have any great stories from any of those, like either in current role or a previous role of times when either great or, or not so great, like yeah. where you felt like you crushed it and everybody's super excited or the opposite? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, there's definitely a number of projects I'm super proud of from over time. One of the things that still to this day, I still look back at this and I'm in shock. I mean, this is now uh, over 10 years in the making. I mean, my time at ThoughtWorks, we took what was called the technology radar, which was, you know, sort of their flagship, kind of like the mind meld of all the global tech leads. And it was a written report. You know, they would get together twice a year. I think we started it in like 2010. And they'd get into a room for a week and they'd plot all the technologies that they thought were bleeding edge or tired and that should go away or things that needed better 
practices around them and started coming up with this great report. And what we learned from it was that when that report would come out for three days, our website went gangbusters. People coming out of the woodwork, hundreds of thousands of people would come to download this thing. And then we'd never see those people again. And so like in any business, there's a lot of these day-to-day you know, pissing matches over, we never get enough of our stuff on the site and whatever. And mm-hmm. a lot of times the techies would be like, oh, well, you know, there's too much UX content or there's too much business content or whatever. And why don't we have more tech content? So that was just sort of just generally like a sentiment. But then when we actually said, well, why don't we look at this specific issue, which is like, we have a piece of technology generated content here that is near and dear to the hearts of so many of our employees. And let's look at what's going on in the world. And, you know, and we were starting to be in the age of uh, the nascent term, I guess, at that point was like 10x content or whatever, you know, we'd be saying, there's people doing things that are showing, not telling, right, and that are more interactive. And so how could we do that with this radar? And so it really kind of became a little bit of a pet project for us at first, we had a couple people, you know, spiking some things on the front end, how could I use D3 to make an interactive kind of quadrant, but then also, just on the nerdy, like data side of it, we're like, okay, well, we've got like this thing that every time it comes out, it's a model that has four major regions, and each one has about 50 different data items plotted to it. We have like folks that were we could make a glossary, we know that's SEO gold, we like we have tons of content that comes out, like every year, there's a written report, but then we could interview people on the different technologies, that's a library of videos. And so it started having a life of its own. And it was like, wow, this is not just a like a one-time thing. This is an evergreen campaign. This is literally the piece of content that will never get stale. It'll be always fresh if we do this the right way. Hmm. And so I think what was cool about that was it was a way to mobilize, you know, our teams were like, I'm working on something cool and interactive. The data folks were like, oh, this is the thing that's going to keep on giving. It's going to keep drawing traffic in. And we said, and we only have to really prove a couple of things. One is if we can even convert a fraction of those people who come every those three days to start coming more regularly, that's actually a pretty big win. And then let alone if we can start connecting that up to some bigger mission. So with each six months, you know, release, we we would add in more features that we started to realize it was becoming an ongoing thing. And I mean, I'm happy to say, I mean, it kept chugging. I moved on from the company in like 2016, but like, it's still going and they still keep adding more. And it's now by far the most rich thing on their site. Now there's tools for making your own, you know, executives are using it in other companies and they're sort of linking back and saying, oh, we're using the radar approach from these guys. So I couldn't have been more proud about that because even though we didn't create the report, we helped facilitate just taking it into another level, which, you know, just became a real business growth tool. So super exciting. I always find it amazing when you look back on those things and yeah, with, with a bit of distance, you know, five or six years since you left there, 10 years since the project, whatever, the things that probably within that organization now feel somewhat inevitable mm-hmm. and are probably, to most folks, they're just how it's always been. You know, they, they joined the organization with this thing in place, right? That's right. And as far as they're concerned, this is just how we do things. And yet those things aren't inevitable. They are path dependent. There are different decisions you could take along the way. There are things that you could spot and say, you know, this could be our thing. And I'm always fascinated by how contingent or not those are, like how inevitable was the success of that? It sounds actually like you, there was actually this amazing thing going on and the amazing thing was spotting it really and taking it from there. Because once you've done that, it sounds like it kind of developed a life of its own. I mean, it really was a labor of love for a lot of different people with different disciplines. I think it could have been very easy. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies would have taken those PDFs and they would have 
slapped them into one of those interactive PDF viewers on the screen and they would have been like... (laughs) Made it harder to read than a PDF. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I love that. Let's move away from the tactics a little bit. And um, I wanted to chat about personal development and learning. I know how curious you are and it comes across the passion that you've had for learning these things throughout your kind of career. Where do you get that combination of inspiration and I guess more like actual skills? Yeah. Now, at this stage in your career, where do you get that from? You know, everybody has their own path. My path was very technical at the beginning and then sort of Mm -hmm. I made my way to marketing kind of after a software career. And so I always felt a little bit of, I know it's like overplayed at this point, like the imposter syndrome in the marketing space, right? Because I didn't have as much of that at my early on. So I felt like I was doing some catch up there. Just because work is so full on all the time, I probably turned to less formal marketing channels than I used to. I do have a couple, like I love Kevin Indig's Growth Memo newsletter as an example, Mm -hmm. like always been a fan of that. I've met her a bunch of times and I still read Anne Handley's newsletter on for content writers because it's just fun and smart and always like she's someone who wants to stay at the top of her game. And I think like, I love that. I love that something that's just done with real quality. I still read some stuff from the realm of product. I think uh, it's a guy named John Cutler who runs newsletter of Beautiful Mess, which is just awesome. I feel like there's a lot of stuff he says. I mean, I'm like, oh, I've been chewing on this for a long time. I'm so psyched somebody's facilitating the conversation. But also a little bit of entrepreneur stuff, you know, like folks like David Cadavy, love your work, like who are just like smart, you know, people who built good businesses on really sound content and design practices. I'm a big history nerd. So not in addition to reading a lot of nonfiction, I'll listen to stuff like the Rest is History podcast, which is, to me, it's all about the small details. I think in any domain you're working in, it's, yeah, you got to understand a little bit about the broad strokes, but then it's what's going to make it really awesome for the community you're in is going down to the small details that make it really stick with your audience. Mm-hmm. Interesting to hear you talk about history there. I really didn't like history at school. I think it was one of my least favorite subjects that I felt it was quite stilted and quite, I guess, formulaic. But since I've left school, and certainly in the last few years, I found myself getting much, much more into that's most of what I read, most of what uh-huh. I listen to. Like you, I'm kind of interested in a combination of, I guess, real history, but also biographies, which are obviously a form of history, and stories about people and individual kind of episodes throughout history. It isn't work, but it, you know, history repeats itself. Yeah. And also people are people throughout all time. Never mind whether it directly connects to work, but what are some memorable things people should check out? Great history episodes of the History Podcast or books you've read or periods of history that people should check out if they haven't. So if you haven't yet, and, and it's what's cool is some of this in the history community on podcasts is an example, there's like some cool friendships between some of the folks who run these shows. Like, so the gentleman who run The Rest is History happened to be good friends with Dan Carlin, who runs Hardcore History. And so at one point, they did a whole interconnecting series of episodes on Babylon. Mm-hmm. Super fascinating, right, as like a, a place in time, because most of what we know about Babylon is probably informed by one of the biblical texts, certainly a lot of it is in the realm of what was considered prehistory. So even right pre Herodotus and, and stuff. And but there were was definitely a point several centuries, like where it was in the modern era, and sort of became almost like the torchbearer for like the legacy of Rome, arguably. And so super interesting stuff. And I never would have known all of that without having spent time with it. But what it really does is I think they spend time going through the different sources comparing what was legend with what is known 
I think those kinds of skills, being analytical around that, is definitely stuff you can take back and apply to other parts of life. There's so much we deal with today where we take so much at face value when we, it's really about, well, let's go back. What did the data really say? Is this plausible? Is this not plausible? Like, what do we really think here? And I think that is such like a great critical thinking ability. And um, so, yeah, so it's a ton of fun from that angle. And mm. yeah, my other big spot, which we don't have enough time in today's talk, but in the last several years, I've gotten really into genealogical research. I volunteer on the board of a nonprofit that deals with Eastern European Jewish records from former Polish territories, which depending upon the year can be in a lot of current places. Right. It's been fascinating as well, because that's an area where you know, you're combining literally old static records, which could have been in any number of languages, and then understanding the conventions of record keeping at that point in time, how that fit into a historical context around, you know, maybe how certain populations were governed and how records were kept with them. And so again, it's another really interesting way. And if you're an online marketer, it's also full of like really cool SEO and online marketing opportunities as well. So which is cool. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I, you're absolutely right about the critical thinking skills and the ability to evaluate, like, could something be true? And I don't know if it crosses the Atlantic, but I remember growing up, my parents' generation, I don't think it was just my parents, had a big thing about don't believe everything you read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard that one as well. I feel like every kid my age was told that as a kid. And yet, you know, I feel like that's also the generation that, you know, without getting into the politics of it, that there's a whole load of, you know, fake news and, and things that have absolutely hit that generation hard, shall we say. And I'm interested in it, in what history can teach us and how we evaluate any source. And you bring it back to organizations, right? And, and where we do our day job. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, false narratives that are just kind of put forward by folks around why something failed or why something didn't. And it's like, sometimes it's just really helpful to say, well, let's go back to the data. Did anyone document this? Did anyone look at what really happened? That's the beautiful thing about analytics. And we sometimes build that in. We say, okay, we ran this campaign on this day and this, we got this crazy result. Let's annotate this. And Later on, we'll be able to retell the narrative. It's a very low-cost thing to do, but later on, it has some benefit in helping us reconstruct the narrative. Also, I wonder how future generations will look back on this time, and what if the digital record will survive? And yeah, that's probably a deeper topic for another day. Yeah, but, and what will yeah. be mundane that we'll just gloss over because there's so much of it, other cases, right? Will it even be preserved Nobody's going to go back and read every tweet, right? Yep. And so even if they do somehow get maintained or stored for posterity, but... Uh, I'm definitely interested in all of those kind of crossover areas. That's been really, really interesting. There's a couple of the history podcasts that you mentioned that I haven't checked out yet. I'm aware of some of them, but I'm going to follow up some of those. Excellent. Listen, it's been really great chatting today, Adam. Thank you so much for your time. Of course. Always a pleasure. I look forward to seeing all the adventures you get up to next. Thanks so much. Have a great one. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions about anything we discuss on the podcast, drop me a line by email at podcast at searchpilot.com or get in touch on Twitter, where I'm at Will Critchlow. This podcast is the business class lounge from Searchpilot. Searchpilot helps large websites prove the value of SEO by making SEO tests easier, faster, and more accurate. You can find out more about Searchpilot at searchpilot.com. Today's podcast was produced by Mark Cotton and hosted by me, Will Critchlow. If you enjoyed the conversation, please recommend it to a friend.